You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Do you need to hear a positive story about an urban ecological win in New Zealand? I've got you. Tim Park is an ecologist and manager of the Ortardi Native Botanic Gardens near Wellington, and he's going to tell us about how reintroducing the native kakabi plant into urban environments has given the native kakabi birds a good chance at survival when previously it wasn't looking so great for them. He's also going to explain the differences between in situ and ex situ conservation as well as how cultivating native plants can negatively affect the gene pool. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be a crack up. This episode has been inspired by two articles that you sent me, and I guess a lot of the questions are based off that. But can you start off by telling us a little bit about your role in conservation? Yeah, so I've been working in conservation in New Zealand for the last 20-plus years. And my background is really in plant ecology. So I did ecology at Victoria University of Wellington and Lincoln University, and then started doing backcountry work, doing forest plots, measuring forest plots. So that's how I learnt my native plants. So travelling initially all around the Wellington region, and then getting a good understanding of our ecology, and then went down to Rakiura, Stewart Island, did a lot of similar work down around there in southern in Fiordland and kind of got a good understanding of, of our native plants and how we interact with them as a people. And then I really started getting into under, like restoring, how we can restore nature, particularly in, in our urban environment. So in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, I've been working in local government in New Zealand, so it, with regional and city councils to understand how we can better look after nature in these urban spaces and kind of you know create cool, good places for people and nature and and we're seeing pretty amazing uh, results of all a lot of the efforts that have been put in by community and council here and, and more recently i've just started as the manager of Ortadi native botanic garden and here at Ortadi we have formal botanic gardens which are all native plants but also we have about a hundred hectares of old growth and regenerating native forest. So we also look after that area as well as the, the botanic garden. So we've got a bit of the contrast between the formal gardens and the and the wild forest. Yeah. I think that what attracted me to you as a guest for this podcast would be that I can really sort of see that dedication to restoring nature within urban environments and that's sort of something that we really care a lot about here at plants grow here yeah cool i mean it's um, i think using plants where we live you know uh, it's really good for us and the environment and i think we're still learning about how to do that well mm. and um, i think the story of kaka and the kaka beak which you picked up on is a really interesting uh, collision i guess between what we call in situ conservation and ex situ conservation which we do both of here and so, yeah, it was pretty amazing to see the witness that event mm. <laughs> last, late last year, yeah. Can you define those two terms? There was Institute and Exostute, was it? Oh, sorry. It, it's probably my ex, my Kiwi accent. <laughs> oh. 
It's uh, in situ, so <laughs> at, at place or ex situ, so beyond the place. So traditional conservation effort is probably we most most of most most conservation that people think about generally would be in situ. So that would be things like controlling weeds or planting or controlling pests, whether that be through fencing or trapping and poisoning. And so do, doing all those things in a wild place essentially is what in situ conservation is. But when you do ex situ conservation, you take something away from the natural environment when you kind of get to a point where there's not many options left for those species or in that in that landscape. So you might be critically endangered species that ne- we don't that needs the sort the seeds need storing. And the ex situ part of that is figuring out how to how that plant can be propagated and, and grown and then put back into the wild again. So that, that when it goes back into the wild, that's again in situ, you see? So taking ex situ is away from that situ, that natural situation. I see. So when we're conserving natural resources, I suppose, in our garden, we're doing ex situ conservation. Yeah, and I think to do it well, you need to do to, to really understand, I guess, the 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 context that you're working within and how the actions you take as an individual moving that away from its natural environment may have in the longer term. And this this situation is a really good uh, indicator of that. So I might sort of step back a bit and describe what's happened in Wellington to give you an understanding a bit about the context that we're working in. But a lot of the work that, but just to clarify things to start with, a lot of the work that botanical gardens do is ex situ conservation. So they're taking plants from other places, putting them all together to, to basically champion those plants and, and or understand them and research them so we can look after them better. And so a lot of botanic gardens are leaders in plant conservation globally because of their knowledge and their, the, the understanding that's developed in those places. But really those plants belong back in the wild somewhere else, right? So in Wellington, there's been a big effort in the last you know, t- more than 20 years to restore nature, and that's galvanised in a number of ways. Uh, one of those is a place we call Zealandia, which is a, a predator-proof fence. So it's basically a species have been reintroduced there from, they have gone extinct locally. You know, that may, may be remnant populations around New Zealand. And there'll be like, species this, such as kaka, which is a forest parrot, so it's a brown parrot, which is a, a relative of the alpine parrot, the kia. But and and kaka was reintroduced into Wellington around 20 years ago, and uh, into Zealandia. But because of the citywide work to plant forests back into reserves and to control pests, these parrots have now expanded right across the city. That's been a spectacular success of, of in situ conservation, but through essentially rewilding the city with a with a, a with a native parrot species that we've only got a, a handful of parrots in New Zealand, not like you guys in Australia, we've got quite a high diversity of parrot. Um, so it's pretty amazing that at home I can have kaka, this you know threatened species, come and visit me at home. You know, it's something that we wouldn't have I wouldn't have dreamed of as a child, and we're seeing that every day. That's so cool, dude. So how do you pronounce the traditional name of the kakabeek plant? Oh, so nutu kaka is the, is the name of the plant. Yeah, it's like an nga sound, nutu kaka. And or kakabeek is the, is the name that's been given to it by, you know, by 
by botanists and, and, and horticulturalists. But because it's a really beautiful plant, it's got a really, it's in, it's in the Fabiaceae, so it's, the, it's a pea. So it's got a big, bright red flower. And I, there's an Aussie plant which is quite similar, which has got a black sort of spot in the middle, which is a close relative. I should have looked it up, but it's a different species than that anyway. They used to be together, but they were separated. And so because it's beautiful, it's become quite a wide, widely cultivated plant in people's gardens because of its big, beautiful flowers. And also we've been growing it here in the gardens and the plants that we saw the kaka visiting last year were plants that were we, we, we actually got from a nursery ourselves. We didn't know the provenance of those. And when you're doing ex-situ conservation, you really want to know the origins of the, of the plants where, where they've come from. And so and because we want to preserve the, the, the genetic integrity of, of that species when we're doing it, ex situ conservation we just can't do it with any genetic material we need to understand where that plant came from if we're going to be able to do meaningful conservation with it mm. and that's because you want the genetics from the original area you don't want to be mixing up genes that may not be sort of evolved for that region yeah exactly yeah and there's a couple of species as well and they they may hybridize mm. and that would be a disaster yeah exactly and without that knowledge and so what happened at Otari is that we had these, you know, critically enda- or endangered parrots <laughs> coming in and feeding in these, you know, beautiful but also critically endangered plants. Um, <laughs> but one of them sort of ex situ conservation and the other one is in situ conservation, you see. But because the, the collision is when you've got the, we don't know what other plants that they've visited. So even if we were to plant, and we have since, plants from a known population, the kakara and, and the other birds are going to keep visiting those plants and cross-pollinating with plants from people's backyards. And so it's, it's potential, it will be, if we, unless we isolate those individual flowers by bagging them and hand-pollinating them, we can't be sure of what the, what the, natural, the, the current pollinators around in the, in the area uh, uh, what else they're visiting you see mm. and so the other plants that are closely related may not be yeah have evolved for that area and so if you're cross-pollinating the genes aren't really set up for that area exactly yeah so what we want to do is actually use known populations and and you know so we're now since then since the kaka visited the cultivars we have removed them and actually planted. We were gifted some plants from a wild population, planted those to replace them. So we we've got the ability to to do you know um, proper ex situ work with them now. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, having having plants, you know, because it's a beautiful plant, people are growing it a lot in their gardens, right? So which is cool, but it's actually it's also it's a bit of a cost to the ex situ efforts we're taking. You see, so. And up the up the east coast where it's from, Pyrafiti, there's there are quite a few or there's a few remnant populations, and the and the locals have been doing huge effort to create seed orchards. So they'll plant a whole lot of plants together and collect those seed for further conservation work from those known populations. And because there's very few plants in in cultivation up there, the way from you know people's houses, they can be a lot more certain that they'll get 
you know good pure um, progeny from those plants yeah so you mentioned it's in the Fabaceae family which is the legume family can you describe yep. the habit and the flowers of the kakabeek yeah so it's it's a shrub which grows to probably you know normally about two two meters to three meters normally but it can get bigger and bright green little seed pods a bit like a pea and the flowers probably five centimeters long bright bright sort of lipstick red color and really broad keel on them yeah so they're sort of shaped for the kaka beak yeah so that they're shaped like a kaka kaka's beak like a hook like a giant sort of almost like a knife knife blade like a pocket knife sort of size, but curved. Hmm. And so is the only animal that pollinates that particular plant the caca bird, or are there other animals that sort of pollinate it as well? There there are other animals, yeah. But so when we saw the caca pollinating visit or visiting the flowers last year, I posted on Twitter, which we saw, one of our retired botanists got in touch with me and said, that's the first time it's been Kaka have been seen on Kaka Beak for a hundred wow. years. <laughs> Holy smokes. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. So it was recorded by, I think, Kalenzoi or Cheeseman. Yeah, over a hundred years ago, last time. So it was pretty amazing to, just to witness it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Because that's real, like that's really beneficial. Like literally what you've done is you've saved not only just one species, but you saved two species that have a mutualistic relationship, at least for now anyway. Exactly, yeah. I mean, there are places where they do coexist, but in really low numbers. So it's just people have it probably been happening, but people haven't seen it. Mm. So I read in the articles that you sent me that the plants are pretty prone to exotic pests and diseases. Yeah, so they get a few diseases. There's a black spot, but also a leaf miner, probably the two worst ones. Mm-hmm. And we manage that in cultivation by pruning them quite hard and like generally like you know up to half of the of the of the lengths every year and actually sometimes prune them right back because they do they can be, be it gets quite windy in wellington if you haven't heard <laughs> so <laughs> we we try and keep them at quite low because they can you know that wind sail effect can blow them over uh, if they get too tall so to, to maintain them in cultivation we do prune them pretty hard yeah i see and does that promote more flowers as well as a byproduct yes. yeah beauty cheering Happy days. So what other sort of exotic pests do you have? I heard that they can be grazed on by a lot of introduced mammals. Yeah, so in, in the wild, they're really threatened by ungulates. So that's goats and deer in New Zealand mainly. So that the the few places that they do survive either have low deer numbers or they're on cliffs. So for a long time, People thought they naturally lived on cl- in cliffs. That was their preferred habitat. But the thinking now is that they're actually limited to there because of these grazers, because they're a preferred species. And they did not evolve with these pests and diseases, and so they just left un- just not ready to deal with them. Yeah, that's right. They, they in New Zealand, we didn't don't re- didn't really have any ungulates at all. We had more, so the giant birds, a bit like ostrich and emu. So they were, you know, sharp beaks plucking as opposed to crunching and munching birds. Yeah. So when those 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 big grazers just came through, they really just clean out the whole of the whole of our ecosystems and really and prevent a lot of regeneration of a lot most of our species which are palatable. 
there's only a few species that are that have low palatability in, in in natural New Zealand ecosystems. So it does really alter the grazing, or the you know high deer numbers and goat numbers does really alter the, the you know how our natural ecosystems function. Are there any efforts being done to reduce or sort of cull those exotic pests? Yeah, it's really variable throughout New Zealand, depending on the land management and and also accessibility. A lot of our forest areas are really inaccessible and, and steep and uh, or a long way from a roadie. Mm. Yeah, so, but interestingly, there's been some recent research showing that deer numbers have uh, are really high at the moment and they've been trending up for some years. And that's that's research been done through that measurement of permanent plot, plots across the whole of New Zealand. So it's a real concern, actually. There needs to be more investment in this space. Yeah. And people don't want to have to face the fact that these animals need to be culled. But unfortunately, the costs of not culling those populations are really high, as you've said. Yeah, it's it's really sad, actually. Um, a lot of these places, I mean, back in the 50s and, and 60s and, and maybe in, into the 70s and 80s, there was a huge sort of huge number of people that would basically live in the bush and, and it was a it was a lifestyle decision. But a lot my understanding is that these days is a lot more people are, are sort of more of the weekend hunters and and so that they simply don't have, don't have the ability to get as far into the backcountry as they used to. There's still a lot of keen hunters out there, but simply the the, the numbers are quite quite different these days. Mm. So there's no natural predators for these animals and so they're just going happy days, no one wants to eat us. We're just going to yep. go wild. Mm. Absolutely. And I've really peaked in, in recent years, yeah. Now, I had a question here. Do the seedlings have a tough time getting established? But I think we've already answered that. Do you have anything else to answer on that? Yeah, and actually the plants that we've been given were from a wild population that were likely to be grazed. So they were basically dug up because of their that their, ch- their days were numbered anyway in the wild. So we, we, we were given, given those to grow here by by the Doc Ranger from up the East Coast, Graham Atkins, who's a real legend, who's been leading a lot of work to restore Nutakaka in the wild. Right. So let's talk about the kaka bird now. Can you describe it for sort of us Aussies who've probably never seen it before? Like, does it look like any of our parrots? You said it's brown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like most New Zealand birds, it's, it, you probably call it quite drab as an Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get some pretty, pretty parrots over here. <laughs> you do. So... I actually love it. It's one of my one of my favourite birds. It's quite it's quite cheeky, not as cheeky as the, the alpine kakia, and they they're they're the one of the collective nouns is a hoon of kaka because <laughs> they they are known to kind of mob up and kind of attack exotic trees, okay. and 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 they're sap feeders as well. So strip bark off of trees and. They've got a little brush-like tongue where they lick the lick the bark once they've ripped the, the bark off, uh, rip the set, lick the set once they've ripped the bark off. Sorry, and and that's part of their diet. Uh, so they're, they're kind of thought to be a bit of a bogan, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and they're kind of you know ripping 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 things up with yeah. with kind of reckless abandon. But what we've been observing in Wellington is that the native species are really a lot more resilient to their attack than mm. the exotics well that's good so yeah I, and that's because i've had a they've, they've evolved together over, over you know mm. 
thousands and thousands of years. And so the Totara, one of our podocarps, that is a favoured species of kaka. And that, so that they'll rip strips off that and the, the Totara will heal nicely. Whereas Macrocarpa and other other conifers don't really recover that well, that heal up as well from those, those, those scarring events. Well, that's actually sort of another beneficial effect of having those, especially out in in-situ environments. Did I yeah. get that right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like it's a biocontrol. With wing. Yeah, biocontrol. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose you're also creating tree hollows as well through that effect. Yeah, well, they actually rely on tree hollows for their for their nests. So, you know, one of those, I think in the UK, there's a campaign to save trees with hollows. And a big reason why we have a lot of kaka around Otari is that because it's old growth forest here, it's the biggest patch of old growth forest in the city. And in Wellington, we lost about 99, 98% of our, of our old growth forest was, has been cleared. And most of the forest that's left has been either cut over or uh, is, is regenerating now. But at Otari, we've got a really great uh, forest remnant with lots of these trees with hollows in them, particularly Hino, which is Eliocarpus dentata. It's in the Eliocarpaceae, which I think you guys have got a few of those too. Yeah, so they, that, that's one of the preferred trees with hollow, you know, and we've actually just got a, a nest which we banded a, a couple of the birds last week. And so they, they fledged, and when they fledged, they are actually quite, they're flightless for a, about a week. And so they're really vulnerable to dogs. And a dog will just grab it because they um, their, their natural response is to freeze because they were their defense mechanisms have evolved to have you know large birds predating on them. So by freezing, they 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 were not visible to the you know flying eyes. But with dogs, they are really attractive because they're quite smelly as well. Mm. So a smelly, um, <laughs> fluffy, <laughs> stinky thing stuck stuck on the ground hasn't got much of a chance with dogs. So we really encourage people to put their dogs on leads in Otari, particularly around fledging time. Yeah, that's a really good advice. And how about cats as well? Do you think that cats should be allowed outdoors without anyone watching them? Yeah, it's a pretty hot debate in, in New Zealand, actually, that cats. Um, and actually, we're a bit behind you guys in Australia where there's a, a, lot, a lot more rules around keeping your cats on your property and having catios or having curfews and things. So we're still developing our, our, our rules and, and policies around those. But yeah, they, cats are likely to be having an impact on them, but we just haven't got the data there. But we, we do know there are both domestic and feral cats roaming in the area, but our ability to manage them is really constrained by the rules and, and legislation that we've got set up in New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, I think it'd probably be a safe bet. I mean, I'm not an expert or anything, but I've seen cats and I've seen the damage that they can do to ecosystems and it's not pretty, especially because they can climb. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. It's, a real, it's a real challenge in New Zealand at the moment We're, and hopefully we'll be able to figure out a way of, of managing the better in the future. Hmm. So what else is threatening the birds? So yes, stoats and rats and um, we've got the brush-tailed possum here as well. Oh, that's um, ours, isn't it? You're welcome. Yeah, you can have it back if you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've, we've got we've got a kind of quite a few introduced species here that are causing havoc, and but we've, like I said, there's in the in the about 20 years ago, there's a whole lot of conservation projects, ecological restoration projects kicked off, and in the mid 90s, about 93, 
a, a big campaign at Ōtari was started to control that brush-tailed possum because they're heavy, heavy herbivores and also they, they eat chicks and eggs as well. And so we had a big campaign to, to control possums in the forest here and then that's extended right to across all the reserves in, in Wellington City now. Mm. Yeah, I hate them too, mate. I think that they're the culprits that ate all of my tomatoes last night. I woke up this morning, <laughs> mate, and all my ripe tomatoes are gone. I'm oh, spewing. Oh, bugger. Yeah, they quite like lemons too. Yeah, I know. I've got netting up, but they still, I don't know, they're bastards. <laughs> yeah, you could use a lip with those cage traps and then, yeah. Yeah, yep. and then relocate them. What they, mate, they, they are... Back prolific in urban areas and they are one of the biggest pests a lot of the time people don't realize that they're a pest and they're wondering like oh you know why is my jazz star jasmine along the fence only eating along the top of the fence like is it snails what's doing that no it's possums they're yeah. the worst particularly those brush tail ones yeah no, yeah we, we wish we didn't have them to be honest yeah there's been a huge effort gone into controlling them and they're part of the one of the species that um has been targeted throughout new zealand and our predator free campaign that's underway mm. so predator free new zealand that is basically what new zealand was well it's it's working along towards it yeah mm. so there's a goal to be to sort of sort of work on methods eradicate possums rats and mustelids from new zealand in the next before you know, by 2050 and in wellington we when that was all started about you know, five or six years ago now, we were well kind of ahead of the pack because we'd done a huge amount already to control possums. So it's really interesting. We've got lots of lots of groups trapping in reserves and backyard and rural areas across Wellington now. And so possums are really under control. Stoats are, are down to really low numbers. And we've and Predator Free Wellington's an organisation that's been trying to eradicate rats from the Miramar Peninsula, which is the area east of the airport. And they're down to very low numbers now. They're just chasing the last few troublesome populations. That is fantastic. Yeah, and at the, there's work being done in Fiordland, which is southern, you know, southwest New Zealand, the really remote forested hill country, and up into the alpine zone, right, um, to try and figure out ways that they can control possums and stoats and rats down to really low levels or eradicate using aerial methodologies and refining those and then they're doing a lot of research around um, how to get right down to that last one or two and, and, and then finish them off as well but the detection methods are really being refined as well so not just how to kill them but how to make sure you have killed them all yeah ah. so how do they here, make sure sorry oh they've got cameras and and um, sensors and yeah all sorts two cards tracking tunnels and they're, and they're working on that on, the, on that sort of the, the toolkit of of methods to do that yeah yeah that's really cool so i guess when we're talking about ecology it isn't just a one-pronged attack you know we're introducing the kaka beak plant which is helping the kaka birds but then we're also dealing with the pests and diseases that are actually causing havoc within the environment so it's a really complex science yeah well there's there's a lot going on um like for in terms of in, in terms of the conservation in wellington they've got predator-free Wellington, so that's controlling the the pests down to really low levels, and we've pretty much that there's a huge effort going in that space. There's a huge effort plant reserves. There's lots of about 150 community groups just in Wellington that are planting reserves up with native plant 
from our, we've got a, a nursery here that grows just native plants for those projects. And they produce around 100,000 plants a year, which is awesome. And then there's, we've got a lot of work happening in the weed control space. And um, weed control, as, as all gardeners know, is sometimes not the most favorable job in the world. <laughs> and so it's, it's a bit of a different type of person that likes to get involved in, in weed control. But we are developing community-based programs around ecological weeds as well, particularly old man's beard or Clematis vitalba which is quite a bad weed here in Wellington. And yeah, there's a number of other species that they're targeting as well. But yes, yeah, we're working with community on, on all those fronts as well in, in our reserves and also in backyards. So there's quite a lot of sort of different approaches to conservation work in Wellington. And a lot of people are doing stuff in their own backyards as well. And also on their road reserves. So we've got a scheme where we provide land land owners to plant the right between their property boundary in, in the road. If they don't want to have a, a weedy bank, they can they can get some native plants if, as long as they commit to planting and, and weeding them until establishment. That is fantastic. Honestly, I would think that that would be something incredible that Australia should be doing as well because seeds are cheap. Yeah, and I mean, and, and it, it really, you get a whole lot of people that are, are sort of also doing these little, little bits and pieces, but it all really adds up. And if you look at Wellington on the aerial photo, you can see a lot of it is really quite green in terms of it. You can't really, the, the, the you know, nature knows no boundaries. So you've got those lines blurring between the reserves and backyards everywhere where you just, you, can't, you know, and, and so you've got these ecological connectivity through the landscapes as well now, which is fantastic, not just along the roadways where it's publicly owned. Mm. And I think it's really easy for people within the community to say, oh, someone else is taking care of that. You know, let the ecologists take care of that. But I think each and every one of us can actually make a small difference in our own yard. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't matter the size of your property. It, a lot of it just comes down to having those conversations with people and, and being one of the people that's doing stuff mm. and, and being part of that movement to restore nature in these urban environments because it just really has created a movement here that we don't even really have a name for because it's not just predator-free. It's not just tree planting. It's not just weed control. There's a whole lot of stuff all around it. And we haven't really even gone into the cultural space yet either. So there's a huge yeah. amount of stuff going on. Well, now that you've brought that up, I'd like to ask you, what are the cultural value of the kakabeek and the kakabird? Yeah, both of them are really highly, my understanding is they're really highly prized by Tangata Whenua. And some really interesting records, even from the early visits by banks. And I think one of the links I sent through to you was historic replanting of Nutukaka up Tairafasi that was collected you know, by banks early on. And when banks, uh, Joseph Banks was a, a botanist mm. on, on the Endeavour, Cook's boat, and Captain Cook died today on Valentine's Day. Oh. <laughs> you know, a long time, you know, it was a couple hundred years ago now. but. Yeah, so that when banks arrived, they uh, with, with with Cook, they noticed that kaka beak was actually grown around marae and and villages, and you know, and and it was used as a as a as a a crop, and and, I, and we think that's because of this the, the pea, which is actually pretty delicious, mm. and the flavours cross between a sort of a sweet pea and a and a green bean, right, and so it's likely it was a vegetable part of the diet, and when you taste it, you can really tell why. Mm. And it's relatively easy to grow from seed, so it would have been 
you know, it's pretty straightforward to grow it. So it would have been one of those ones that was also grown around, you know, in those early, early settlements. And do you think that it would have been recognised for its beauty as well? Oh, absolutely. It's beautiful. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. so it's cool when you can get like those crops that also have aesthetic value too. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But I think you have to, you know, there's a trade-off having it in a, in a botanic garden because if you want peas, you, you, can't, you need to prune before you get to the pea stage. So a bit of a trade-off there. Yep. Right. <laughs> and I don't think it's very nice for people to come to botanic gardens and just pick their own seeds and stuff. <laughs> no, off the it's, it's not a place it's not to something grow we recommend. Food, unfortunately, <laughs> not yet. We'll get there though. Some gardens have lovely little herb gardens. It's a bit like that. You wouldn't, you know, people learn learn from those places more than they can collect. So yeah, absolutely right, mate. You got to get your hands in the dirt and you got to have a go at gardening yourself. It's all well and good to sit up there, you know, in your ivory tower or whatever, and think about plants and talk about plants and talk about ecology. But actually, the only way you can really learn is by doing it yourself. Absolutely, we're all learning as well. You know, everything mm. we're all learning new things about plants, new things about how things interact and. A good way to, to do that is through iNaturalist, which you probably already know about. It's the app where you can record take photos of plants and insects and, and birds, any living thing, and, and contribute to a global network of, of knowledge. Absolutely. Tim, I feel like we've been talking for 40 minutes, and I feel like we've only just scratched the surface <laughs> of, this, of this topic. Yep. Is there anything else that we need to know about the kaka bird and the kaka plant? Oh, yeah. So kaka are also really prized tonga species. You know they were really, you know, much loved a bird, but they were also they were they were harvested for their for for food, and actually the name of Ortari, the old name is Ortari Kaka, which means the place of many kaka traps. So it was a place where, among other things, and it were, there were gardens here as well a long time ago, that were established by early Māori. But your kaka were harvested here, and there's records actually on the. I think the HMNS, uh, HMNS Challenger, which did a global expedition in the 1870s, I think it was, and they recorded kaka for sale in the poultry shops in Wellington. So they were a traded and you know um, harvested, you know, crop if you like, like the kidada is prized for its its meat as well, but also is very. You know, has been, its numbers are hugely reduced all over New Zealand now. So maybe lay off eating them for now until absolutely. But hopefully, one, one day, um, hopefully we can re, re, revive. We can be in a yeah. position where some of that those traditional methods and that um, ways of being can be reignited, and, and you know those connections can be remade. If we can do it sustainably, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's worthwhile. Couldn't agree more. I mean, what an exciting future to have caca birds all over the country again. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're well on the way in Wellington along that journey. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool, man. Good on you for doing that good work, bro. Thank you. Um, I've just found, I've remembered the name of that, that <laughs> plant that's similar to the caca beak, and it's the Sturt's Desert Pea. Swamp ah, yes. So that's yeah. a very different habit, isn't it? Yeah, but... They're very visually. They're quite similar. Their flowers are some similar shape, but they're now. I think they were one point. They were. Oh yeah, they were a synonym is Cleanthus as well. So they were in the same genus previously, but they now have been split apart. I so see. The, so desert pea has got a black part in the middle of the flower, whereas the kaka beak is red right through, and it's a it's a larger shrub that lives in yeah in, in amongst forest. 
Interesting. Yeah, and having a look at both of those flowers, you can really see that similarity in the flowers. Yeah, both pretty cool plants. I'd love yeah. to meet Sturt's Desert in the wild one day. <laughs> yeah, so would I. I saw it in the nursery the other day. It's looking pretty spectacular, but it doesn't really grow around Melbourne. I think it's yeah, more of a like Western cool Australian one. Yeah. yeah. Uluru. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, more of a desert, as, it, as the name would suggest. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else that we've neglected to mention about cacabirds and cacabeaks? I think, you know, one thing is just, you know, often people ask, well, should I be planting cacabeak at home? And I think, yeah, you should be, um, as long as you understand that it's not part of its wild habitat mm. and that you take that, that plant is being is, is taken out of the wild and, and then and we, we just don't want to blur the line between horticulture and, conserv- and, and that formal conservation effort. And we don't want to, you know, we're, just, we're thinking more about that, how we, we approach that, that t- tension into the future. Mm. Yeah. Do you mean from a genetic point of view? Yeah. Yeah. So we're making sure we're not diluting the genetic gene pool. Yeah. I and mean, I'd, I'd think twice about planting a kakabeek if I lived in Gisborne that I didn't know where it came from. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, but in Wellington, it's probably not as much of an issue. Yeah. But it does constrain what conservation work we can do at Altadi as a result because of the success of it as a horticultural plant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And do the caca birds have a long, like, do they do they fly long distances and spread genes far, or do they sort of live in a localized area and only spread genes a short distance? Yeah. So that they were initially established in a two hundred hectare area called Zealandia, which is just a couple of kilometres down the road from us at Otari. And so they've now spread across probably a, well, getting up towards uh, maybe eight or 10,000 hectare area beyond that across the, the city because of they're now largely safe from predators. We've got video of actually of, of possum attacking kaka on the nest and, you know, you know eating the chicks or the, or the eggs. So there's, you know, when you remove all those predators, they suddenly can they do their own thing. Tim, I always like to ask our guests at the end of each episode, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know about? And it doesn't have to be something related to the topic. It can just be whatever you'd like to let people know about. Well, I think I'd like to welcome everyone to come visit Ortari. Come and check out the plants we've got growing here. It's a place for plants by plant people. Mm. both the wild part at, at, in, in the forest areas, but also the botanic gardens. And think about what you can do in your own place to grow some native plant, but also do a bit to control pests in your backyard or um, control weeds in your backyard because it all adds up if we all do something. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tim. What a great episode, mate. Cheers, Daniel. Ho- hopefully do it again sometime. Absolutely. Check the show notes to read more and to follow Tim on social media. It would mean the world to us if you could please share this episode with somebody who needs to hear a positive ecological story, because they can often get drowned out by problems that are going unsolved. Thank you for listening to the Plants Grow Here podcast. If you like this episode, you're sure to find more content that you'll like, including episode 91, Intro to Eucalypts, episode 88, native pollinator preferences, and episode 63, simply titled Biodiversity.